Good morning, everyone. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my delight to be with you on Good Friday. And I've loved how our creative team have created a narrative and a beautiful way that we can inhabit the story of Good Friday. Can we just honor and thank the creative team just for the work that they've placed in? Hey, if it's your first time here with us in your life, thank you. Some of you have returned after many years, or some of you, uh, this is what you call home. Whether it's your first time, a return visit to New York, or this is where you call home, thank you for spending this morning with us. You could have spent it on the beach. You could have gone anywhere, but here you are. Thank you. But I, I've got to be honest, the, the weight of today rests upon me because this is a really important day for those who call Jesus Christ Lord, for those who follow Jesus. This is a day that changed my life. This is a day that I pray might change yours if it hasn't already. What we celebrate on this day is the most important message of all time and in all time. And so I feel that. And so what I need today is to make sure that I can just get out of the way and God can do his thing. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me on to that effect? Let's pray. God, whether we're online, around Australia, the world, or we're here in the room, we believe and know that you are with us. God, I ask right now that we would re-inhabit the story of Easter. May it not be lost in us today. May we not just walk through this as another thing we're doing on Friday. But Lord, melt our hearts again with the truth of the gospel. May we be encaptured again by the beauty of the cross. May you stir something in you and all of us, not just those who don't know you, but all of us. May you return the joy of our salvation. That we would know on this day there is a reason we call it good. Because our lives can be changed and transformed because of what you did. So, Lord, we need you today. Less of me, more of you, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. This year, uh, I'm reminded of a moment that happened about 10 years ago. About 10 years ago this year, on September the 1st, I, uh, I witnessed what I would think is one of the greatest loves on display moments of my life. See, many, many years ago, 10 to be in fact, it was already said, we were, I, was, uh, I was knowing a girl named Sarah Turner. And on September the 1st, in the, in the afternoon, Sarah found herself walking around Burley Headland with her good friend, Holly. And Sarah Turner and, and, and Holly are walking around. As they do make their way around Burley Headland, they come across a lantern hanging in a tree just above Talabudra Creek side of the Burley Headland path. Now, it's, it's bizarre. Not many, not many lamps or, or lanterns are usually hanging in the trees of that part of the Gold Coast. So they're intrigued. And as they draw closer, Sarah realizes that hanging under all of the lanterns as that are filling the trees all around her are pictures of her. Now, that would be freaky, right, to come around the corner and see pictures of you hanging. What would be even freakier is to find a second person in the photo, a tall, lanky, white dude looking like me, right? Other than the fact that I was her boyfriend at the time, and that was beautiful. So there are pictures of Sarah and I in the photo. Now, she makes her way and goes off the path and through the trees down towards the beach. She finds letters that I've written her and a fairy-like trail guiding her way. And as she goes deeper and deeper into the trees, the fairy lights make give way to the sand, which gives way to Tiki Torch's path. And she thinks at the end of this path, there will be a six-foot, muscle-bound, dark-haired, ingenious person, tanned and good-looking, waiting for me. She lifted her eyes and she only saw me, but she kept on going. And as she came to that moment, she came down to the beach and I held her hands and I said, Sarah, you are my best friend. You're the love of my life, and God has called us to spend the rest of our lives together. I knelt down on one knee, and I said, sweetheart, would you marry me? And she, and she said no. 
Thanks, guys. No, so 10 years ago, Sarah Turner became Sarah Hands on December the 8th, a couple months later. It was a beautiful moment. But, but what, what I loved about the moment is as I stood up, I picked her up and I spun her around. And there was a wedding happening on the other side of the creek. And on that moment, the whole wedding stopped and everyone turned and looked at us like, yeah! And everyone's sunbaking on the beach like, yeah! And all my friends came out of the bushes who were taking photos like, yeah! It was amazing! Now, why was everyone cheering? Because in this moment, my love was no longer just for me. My love wasn't just a word. It wasn't just an action. It wasn't just an idea. My love had become an action. My love was on display for the world to not only see but to partake in the joy. Why is it important, friends? It's because love is more than a feeling. It's more than an idea because actions speak louder than words. We don't just tell people we love them. We show it with the fullness of our lives. And that's what I was doing in this moment. The grandeur of display. Even the dolphins jumped out of the water to celebrate with us on that day. And there's this moment, right, where, where my actions spoke louder than my words. But this is often how we communicate love. A husband buys flowers for a wife, maybe to repent or maybe just because he's in love. A mother takes care of her son's knee. Why? But not because of anything other than love and care. Actions speak louder than words. A friend says, hey, call me anytime. I will be there for you. Why? Because they've made a commitment not just to think of their love, not just to feel their love, but because love is more than a feeling, friends. When the feeling has gone, love is always a choice of an action we display. Friends, I'm sure I could tell what you love by the actions of your lives because actions speak louder than words, do they not? And so therefore, we must ask ourselves a question today. If actions speak louder than words for humans, then surely actions must speak louder than words for God. How do you know God loves you? How do you know God loves you? Have you had a moment on a beach with God where it is evident not just between the two of you, but for all the world to see that there is a God who aches and yearns for you to know his love. Now, some of you here today, you've already switched off because you're thinking this is for people who don't yet follow Jesus. If you call yourself a Christ follower in the room, this is for you. How many of our hearts have grown cold to the love of God? How many of our hearts have forgotten the joy of our salvation because we think that the love of God is for everybody else? And this Easter, whether you know him well or you don't know him at all, I've come to tell you that there is an action that God spoke across the halls of eternity where his love would be louder than words by the action of his life. Do you know that he loves you today? Do you know that he loves you today? This is what Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. He writes of what it means for us to gather on Good Friday. He writes what it means for us to come together. And I don't know why you're here today. Maybe you're here as a gift to mom and dad that you come at Easter and you come at Christmas and this is just what you do. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Maybe you're here today because you saw an Instagram ad or a social media post. You know, I'm going to give church a try. This is what everyone else is doing. So you're here. I just want to say thank you for giving us a try today. Maybe you've come before. You're very good. Whoever you are. I believe you are not here because you chose to, but because God drew you. Why? Because he wants you to see his love on display for you today. Whether you're young, whether you're old, or whether you don't want to tell us your actual age, God loves you. And that's what we read about in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8, where Paul writes, a man named Paul wrote to the Roman church in the New Testament, trying to explain this to them. He says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul writes. Because very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Someone may die for a possibly a good person. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Good Friday, friends, is love on display. Good Friday is when God showed his actions back to his words. That God is not just love, but God has love for you. So I want to just break this down for a moment. I have like 10 minutes to do this because we, we, we want to sit in communion together today. And if you're at home or online, we'd love you to prepare to take communion with us in a couple of moments. But here Paul is actually trying to communicate with us a journey through and past our understanding of love into God's understanding of love. See, in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul writes this. Let's focus in just on the first verse. You see, at just the right time, whilst we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What does it mean when it says just at the right time? What's Paul trying to communicate about the acts of God? Because friends, the, a grand act of love that is ill-timed will fall on deaf ears. Let me say this again. A grand act of love that is ill-timed will fall on deaf ears. I've been married to my wife for 10 years now. In the first service, I said, I've been married to my wife for 10 years today. And everyone clapped. This is not my wedding anniversary. And so I like stole the glory from Jesus just for this moment. Like, oh, well done, Michael. No, 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 no. That's, it's in December. I forgot. But I've been married to my wife. <clears throat> my wife was at the first service. She's fine. I've been married to my wife for 10 years this year. And, and I think about, you know, if I came to my wife at 3 a.m. in the morning and I just woke her up, I'm like, sweetheart, guess what? I've got a candlelit dinner downstairs for you. I've poured the bath. I've got all these bouquets of flowers. I love you. What do you think she's going to be like? She's going to be like, you idiot. I'm asleep. She would not use those words, but that would be the expression of her heart. She's like, you're crazy. I don't feel loved. I feel interrupted. Go to sleep, Michael. Why? Because a grand act of love, ill-timed, falls on deaf ears. That's why it's so important to recognize God knew exactly what he was doing when he sent his son when he did. But when does he want to interrupt your story? When does God choose to step into your narrative? Well, Paul tells us, when you are powerless. When you are powerless. Now, what does it mean to be powerless? It means that at that moment, you realize no matter what you're doing, you can't help yourself. You need someone else to step in. I used to be a lifeguard on the Gold Coast. And um, in the first service, when I said that, someone goes, ha, really? And I was like, oh, wow. That's probably because of my pasty white complexion. People don't believe that I used to be a white guy. I used to be tan. <laughs> We all knew what I meant. I used to be a lifeguard at Dreamworld, which means I wasn't a real lifeguard. I was just like, you know, I was navigating like, you know, short, shallow pools. But when I was a lifeguard at Dreamworld, um, we would have these moments in Whitewater World where they would teach us what to do if someone was struggling. And if someone was struggling in that moment, we, we always knew we had to wait until they had given up before we could enter into the moment. Because if you approach someone in the water and you're swimming out to them and they're still struggling and they're flailing and they haven't yet realized that they can't get out of this situation on their own, what will happen is as you approach, they will grab a hold of you and they will drag you down with them. So we were taught to swim away from them and say, I need you to stop struggling and give in so that I can step in. You need to recognize how powerless you are in this moment so that I can save you. So this is what Paul's saying. It's at the right time. You want to know why so many of us maybe struggle to feel the love of God. We haven't yet realized we are helpless in striving to save ourselves. Paul's saying it's when you realize that you're powerless. And this is why Christ came when he did 2,000 years ago. It was actually thousands of years after the earth had been created and formed. See, before the time of Christ in the Bible, it's the first part of the Bible is known as the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is pretty much the story of humanity's struggle in the water of their own failures. 
as they strive and try to fulfill the law, they fail to fulfill the law. So humanity then looks to divine prophets to guide them, and they fail to follow the divine prophets. They look into heroic kings and queens to show them the way. But no matter how great or heroic the figure, they always fall short. Humanity cannot fix itself. So after humanity has realized that nothing they do will be enough, Christ is sent and Christ steps in right when we were powerless enough. But God wants to intersect your story, not when you think you've got it all together. But for those of you who've come today and realized nothing you're doing is changing the narrative, Christ says, it's time for me to write a better story for you. This is why he says, right at the right time, whilst we're still powerless, Christ stepped in and died for the ungodly. Now, I know you're here today and you're like, Michael, so far Paul's called me helpless and ungodly. This is the most discouraging Good Friday message ever. But friends, I've got to tell you to know that God died for you whilst you were ungodly and that many of us in today are ungodly. It's actually good news. Why? Well, I'm going to deal with why Christ died for you in a couple of moments. But right now, I want to talk about why it's good news that he sees you as ungodly before coming to him. Because it's a really good qualifier as to those Jesus has come to save. Could you imagine how much more horrible it would be if it said, whilst you were powerless, Christ died for the godly? Or Christ died for the good-looking? Hands up if you think you're good-looking. Hands up if you know you're not. Hands up if the person next to you is not good-looking. Some of you got awkward car rides home. There's this sense, right, where the qualifier actually means what we can accept. So if we can actually admit, hey, I'm ungodly, here's the thing. What is he saying here? In your worst moment, whilst you were in your darkest time, when you were watching that thing online, when you were taking part in that activity, when you were saying those words, when your heart was broken by selfishness or pride, or you were caught in a moment of darkness that you would love to forget, in that moment that felt ungodly to you, God says, I see you in that moment, I pursue you in that moment, and I came for that person. Not the person knows to sit in church on Easter, but the person who is lost. It's a beautiful qualifier. Why? Because it's the lowest common denominator. God came for the ungodly. All we need to admit when we come to Easter to know and experience the love of God is, hey, I don't have it all together, and I'm not the person God created me to be. And God goes, great, I can work with that. That's the beauty of what Paul is talking about here. He's lowering the bar so low where Jesus is saying, I came for you all. For you all. And I came to die. And then Paul asks the question, who would you die for? And this is what Romans 5 verse 7 is all about. It's Paul walking through the problem of our culture and our society. Who would you die for? He says this, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Maybe for a good person, someone might possibly die. Why is he saying, hey, you know, if there is righteous people in our society, people we respect, I don't know who it is for you, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, maybe someone current that you hold up and respect. Paul's saying is, even for people we respect, very few of us would go, I would give my life for them. Now, for some of you, he says, but we might die for someone we think is good, a family member, a friend, someone we like. But both of these kinds of people, we have placed value on their worth and then justify, I would give my life for you because you add value to my life. You love me back. You've done something good in the world. What Paul is arguing here is that our society is built on what's known as a meritocracy. That we look around and we're like, I'm only going to do things for others that I think deserve it. And that's not the way the kingdom of God works. See, meritocracy is built on earning merit. It's the way our school system works. Why do you get an A in maths? Because you show you're good at maths. You're not good enough at maths and you'll get a D. The problem is, 
is that doesn't stay in school. We continue that system of grading on people's lives, even on our own life. We base people on their performance. And I said to you, would you die for someone in your family? You might say yes, but if I was to add another name in there, Putin, Scott Morrison, Anthony Albanese, I'm just hitting every single political party right now. I'm like, would you die for any of those? Many of you would say no to at least one of them. Why? Because you have already deemed that they are not worthy. But Christ says this. Christ says a different story. He didn't come for those who wanted him. He did not come for those who loved him. He did not come for those who had done enough for him. He did not come for you just because you believe in him. Maybe you're an atheist in this room today and you think that God is a fairy tale for those who get scared or cold late at night. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, what's this guy I've been talking about? I don't even care. I've got to tell you, God doesn't want you because you want him to. That's the way our world works. That's the way my heart works. Our love is conditional. That's not the love of God. This is why in Romans 5 verse 8, the story becomes revolutionary. In Romans 5 verse 8, Paul writes that God's love is different, that our love would not die for even some people who have given good things to us. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. Whilst we were sinners, Christ died for us. But God interrupts your narrative. Why? To demonstrate with actions louder than words that he is not a God that just says, I feel love for you. He wants to show you how much his love is. And love can always be weighed up by the, cost of what it, by the price of what it costs to show. And he demonstrates his love for you in what way? That whilst you were still sinners, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a sinner? Some of you like today, I'd come to church to be told I'm a sinner. A sinner is not someone that does naughty things. A sinner is the reality and diagnosis of the human condition. When we look at the world today, friends, do we see it getting better? Do we see it getting cleaner? Are things heading upwards and to the right, or are they continuing to break? Why? Because our world has a problem that we have broken the narrative of our world by sin, and sin is just selfishness. And friends, are not all of our hearts tainted and marred by the sin of selfishness? To be a sinner is simply this. At some stage in our life, everyone in this room have said at some stage, I want to go my own way. God can't tell me what to do. The Bible calls this being an enemy of God or rebelling against God. Why is it so important to identify what it means to sin? It's because of this. Christ doesn't come after you because you came to an Easter service. It was whilst you were sinning. Whilst you were saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. I care nothing for you. I want to live my own life. If someone were to say that for you, if someone in your family, even a friend, would say, I want nothing to do with you. You mean nothing to me. I'm even going to try and argue that you don't exist. How would you act? How did God act? I've got to tell you. I'm going to send my son. Because even though you hate me or want nothing to do with me, I want everything to do with you. I will pursue you. Whilst we were enemies, whilst we were rebels, whilst we were broken in our selfishness, whilst our marriages were torn apart, whilst we were addicted to pornography or some substance, whilst we were walking in shadows and shame, whilst our lives were falling apart and we were, we were broken by our guilt and could not do anything to help ourselves and powerless and ungodly in our estate. In that moment, before we came after God, God came after us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to a cross to die a death that we could have died. Why? That you would know this is love on 
display. That nothing you could do could weaken the love of God for you. That nothing you could do could change the love of God for you. God doesn't love you more because you came to Easter. God doesn't love you more because you're in church. God doesn't love you more because you've opened or haven't opened the Bible. He has loved you ever since he died for you, ever since before you were created. He has known you and he has called you. And he sent his son because it's his moment on the beach with you, where as the whole world observes, he's declaring his love for you that you might respond and say, yes, God, even though I don't deserve it, even though I don't deserve it, I want to know this love. Why? Because this love forgives, friends. It washes cleans. It calls you to lay down your life that you might pick up his and know freedom and life to the full. This is the love Christ came to give you, not just to display it for you, but to overwhelm you with it that you might know a better story, a better hope, that even if you leave here today still addicted and still broken by sin and shame, his love is still for you. That's the love of God. And so, friends, what does it mean for you to respond to the love of God? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean for us to actually not only know the love of God, but to experience the love of God? It's to admit you are helpless. It's to admit you need a God to make you godly again. It's to admit that we are nothing but sinners. But when we come to Jesus, we are called saints and children and sons and daughters. Are you a son and daughter of God today? See, all you need, the only qualifier for everybody that is a Christian is this. The only thing you need this morning is need. And there are Christians in the room who have forgotten how much you need Jesus. And there are those of you who don't know Christ and you're like, I know how much I need helping. Then you're in the exact right place. What does it look like for you to be included in the family of God? Well, for that, I return to a story that happened 2,000 years ago on Good Friday. See, Jesus wasn't the only one that was crucified on that day. Crucifixion was a form of execution instilled by the Roman government. There were, three other, there were three men, Jesus and two thieves, crucified either side of Jesus. One of the thieves ridicules Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, you can take yourself down off the cross. And the other thief defends him and then says, Jesus, remember me when you go to heaven today. Remember me. And Jesus says, I will remember you. Come, you will be with me in paradise today. And I just want to pause and, and, and reflect in something that Alistair Begg, a great preacher, reflects on. He tells this great story. He asks this question. That thief went on to die on the cross that day. And just for this moment, imagine what it would have been like for that thief to rock up at the gates of heaven. Like the very next moment, after suffering and pain, he, he awakens to this reality that's like, oh my gosh, I'm in heaven. And there's this angel standing at the front of heaven. Here's the thief who was hanging on the cross besides Jesus. And the angel pulls out a massive dusty book. Poof. And looks at the thief and says, why are you here? And the thief goes, honestly, mate, I don't actually know. And he's like, what do you mean you don't? He's like, I don't know. I was having a really weird conversation with like, and I was in a lot of pain and now I'm here. So the angel turns around and Alistair Begg says it so well. He's like, goes and gets his supervisor. Supervisor comes across and says to the thief who was on the cross besides Christ, says, so why are you here? We're trying to work this out. He's like, I, I don't know. He says, okay, well, let's work this out. Can you tell me and explain to me the doctrine of justification by faith alone? And the thief is like, what? He's like, okay, well, let's go a step further. Tell me about the last Bible study you did. And the thief is like, I don't even know what a Bible is, man. Like, I can't even read. He's like, well, did you attend church last Easter? He's like, I don't even think churches have been invented yet. Like, like what's going on here? And then so the supervisor angel turns to him and goes, well, then explain to me why you were here. Why do you think you get to come in? And the thief goes, because the man on the middle cross said, come. 
And that's all you need, friends. Not a performance. The man on the middle cross named Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself looks you in the eye and says, Come. Come know my love. I know your story. And I want to write a better one. Will you come know me today? See, Christ says, Come to this table. Come today and remember. It's interesting. When I was young and my mom would, you know, we'd go over someone's house. She taught me that whenever you go over someone's house for dinner, you always take something. You take cheese or crackers or olives or beverages. Because if someone exposes their hospitality to you, you're meant to contribute back in hospitality. It's just how I was raised. And this is a table of hospitality today. What Christ has done is he's prepared a table for you. And he says, I want you to come and share of this bread and drink of this cup. And here's the question. What is our response to Christ's hospitality? What are you going to bring to the table? Can I tell you the only thing you can add to this table? The only thing that you can bring to this table is need. If you bring anything else, it's going to ruin your appetite. The only thing that you can bring to this table is I need help. I need a savior. I still need Jesus. And in response, friends, you get freedom. You get to feast on grace, on love, on value, on worth. For you are loved. So in a moment, we're going to share together. But before then, I just want to reflect. Ben's going to sing a beautiful song over us. Do you know the love of God today? And if not, I wonder if it is time, whether you're here or you're online, to actually recognize God loves you, not because you've done it or you've made it or you have an A over your head, but because he came for you in your worst moment and he loves you regardless. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we wait on you for communion today, we recognize that you still say, come. Come to the table. This table where we get to commune with you and be remembered into the body of Christ. Whether we can come physically today or whether we can come proverbially in our houses, in our homes, wherever we may be watching. Lord, may we, may we boldly step and say, I'm helpless. I don't have it all together. But in this moment, God, you still want me. You still want Michael, a pastor who never gets it right. Maybe sometimes, but God, more often than not, you still want me. You still want us. Your grace is so good. You are worthy to be praised. Let's just wait in this moment together as the band sings a song over us as we prepare our hearts.